You're listening to Ember Weekend, your can recap of all things Ember. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from EmberConf 2016, kind of? Uh, and we're here with Lauren Tan. Uh, this uh, this was originally recorded in at EmberConf, but uh, I think uh, we had some audio troubles, so we're, we're re-recording, and now we're actually kind of split-located between Boston and, and Jacksonville. Uh, how are you doing, Lauren? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, well, of course. This is amazing. Uh, uh, could you uh, tell us a little about yourself? Okay, so, well, some of you might know this, um, but I was born in Singapore, uh, and I lived there for a pretty long time. And then I moved to Australia for college, and I lived, uh, I worked and lived in Australia, Melbourne, uh, for about seven years, and then I moved to Boston last year to work at Dockyard. Um, and before college, I actually used to do a lot of artwork. Um, you might actually be able to see some of my artwork on the Dockyard blog. We had a post uh, fairly recently on it. Um, and since then, um, I branched out and stumbled into programming, and now it's my career, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I, the move from Australia to Boston, I think maybe we mentioned this already, but uh, how are you liking the fact that there aren't spiders that can actually like kill you or eat you? Or... <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... It's definitely nice not having lots of scary animals uh, and weird noises um, <laughs> around. I remember when I first moved to Australia, I heard this um, this bird called the kookaburra. And at the time, I didn't realize it was a bird because the, the call of that bird sounds a lot like a monkey. So I thought it was like, there's a monkey in my backyard, uh, only to realize that there are actually no monkeys in Australia. Um, it's actually a bird. So that's just confusing. blew my mind. I really, <laughs> I with all the wildlife wildlife in Australia, I would have totally assumed that there were monkeys as well. Yeah, surprisingly, there are no monkey like not native to Australia at least. Huh. Um, <laughs> and as for Boston, well, it's snowing right now, so there's that. Oh my word! Yeah, we're gonna get about eight to ten cent. Oh, eight to ten centimeters. That's like five to six inches. It's April fourth. What is I going on? Is it summer before. yet? We're having a pretty chilly, uh, a chilly time ourselves. It's it's about seventy degrees here, so you know. Yeah, but so <laughs> far Boston's been great. Um, you know, working at Dockyard has been awesome. Uh, lots of super smart people, very talented, and um, the work is always really interesting. Very cool. cool. So could you uh, could you explain? Uh, I'm not entirely certain which handle I should use, either potato or sugar pirate. Um, could you explain maybe the origin of these things? Yeah. So. Um, all of my internet nicknames have been some variant of food at some point. <laughs> um, in my EmberConf talk, I spoke a little bit about how I play this game called Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, and in that game, my character's name is Milkshake. Uh, and on GitHub, I'm known as Potato with an E. Um, so, um, or I, I don't know, I just, at the time, I was just thinking of like a random food name because I love food. Uh, and Potato with an A was taken, so I had to spell it the Japanese way with an E, um, and then it stuck ever since. Um, but then um, quite recently, maybe like in the past two years, I decided on a new handle, which is Sugar Pirate instead. Um, and that's kind of what I prefer now. Um, I actually own the GitHub account. I just have been kind of afraid of transitioning, of renaming my uh, main account to Sugar Pirate because I'm afraid of all the redirects for my repos. But I imagine eventually I will do it at some point. Yeah, the redirect stuff is, uh, is as I, I think GitHub handles it really well, but uh, yeah, I can definitely understand your, your reticence there. Yeah, the, the handle though is definitely better and, and makes for a much better Tomster sticker. <laughs> definitely. That's true. Yeah, I, I actually didn't get one of them from the from EmberConf, so we need to we need to find some way yeah, to- Yeah, I know. So I will, I will do another print run and I will send <laughs> you guys um, a couple of uh, Ember Sugar Pirate stickers. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did you get started in Ember? So after college, uh, my friend and I, we worked on our, our own startup. Um, it was called The Price Geek. And it was a startup that was about solving the problem of, um, you know, getting analytics for prices of products online. So for example, you might want to buy like a new phone, but you're not really sure what's a fair price to pay for it. So using our website or our startup, uh, you could basically look up at prices of anything and um, get these really cool detailed charts on price history, um, trends and statistics and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a pre-Ember app 
it was a it was a very horrible spaghetti jQuery and Rails application um, <laughs> that wasn't very fun. But the next startup I worked at, uh, which was after the price gate, um, that was an Ember app, um, also Rails backend. So we didn't have anything like Ember CLI. We had to use the Rails asset pipeline, which was also uh, not ideal. But uh, that was how I got started in Ember. Um, and that was about probably close around two plus years ago. Uh, and since then, you know, Ember has changed so much. But a lot of the core concepts that we we learned from um, those early days have actually been brought forward and um, yeah, it's been a really great transition from that. That's cool. I, I can tell that you do quite a bit of consulting because uh, when you refer to the asset pipeline, you refer to it as not ideal instead of like <laughs> string of expletives. <laughs> it's got to be politically correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, when you have like been working with these different technologies, Ember and Rails and some other things, how much of the, the experience from your startups did you were, were immediately applicable into uh, your work at Dockyard? Um, definitely a lot has been pretty applicable. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're still building a product for someone, uh, whether or not it's ourselves or a client. Um, so as a developer, you know, you always feel excited when you work on a project. Uh, you know, you feel like you're working on something cool. And I think with Ember, it really lets you um, shorten the time it takes to deliver on these kind of ambitious experiences for um, client-side applications um, and how the work has changed um, I would say is to do mostly with integration with APIs for example Ember CLI and Ember Data makes it super trivial to integrate well with um, um, any kind of API not even ones that aren't in JSON API um, so that's been very useful to have uh, in Ember especially when you're in a consulting kind of role right do you, do you find that it's easy to jump back and forth between different Ember apps as easy as it was in like rails days uh the, the similarities and conventions definitely if anything i would say it's become easier because i would i would say that a lot of the api surface has shrunk um you know um there is like this for example now i remember in the past there used to be both views and components and it was it was never really super clear on when you should use one over the other and then there was also this like very confusing index controller and array controller. Um, and actually a lot of that has been trimmed away. And I think Ember has been easier than ever to pick up, uh, which is really great. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it's It seems to be getting, uh, I mean, much simpler now, even with, uh, I saw Radable Components, uh, that add-on. And that just, it, it's, it really does feel natural um, to just get rid of controllers and just you know tell, point the route to a component. Yeah, I think um, React in general and Redux have really paved the way in how we think about web apps and although we I think although we uh, Ember and React may not always see the same on certain things for example templates in JSX <laughs> um, I think we uh, a lot of these the new frameworks um, share a lot in common more so than we would like to think um, and I think it's it's great you know one of the one of the things Yehuda said at EmberConf which really resonates with me um, and really strengthens my belief in ember is uh what he said about all good things will eventually land in ember and i think that's really true you know like ember is probably the only framework where we've managed to swap a whole rendering engine um, under the hood with pretty much no work for any of the consuming apps i think that's like a huge achievement and um you know like looking forward i think um any kind of other performance improvements uh for example uh, Glimmer 2, which was announced at EmberConf, is uh, going to have a lot of performance improvements. I think that's the kind of thing we can expect Ember to have going forward. Um, you know, like um, a lot of consuming apps will just be able to benefit from these without really doing much, which is awesome. Right, and that's kind of the advantage of of basically reducing the the surface of the of the Ember API such that underneath the hood things can change and be more fluid. Right. I mean, that's definitely the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So um, with contracting with Dockyard, do you find yourself um, doing more like uh, rescues where you're kind of bringing Ember apps or Rails apps back up to speed or uh, more greenfield new code or uh, more of an advisor role? So at Dockyard recently, I would say most of our new contracts have been staff aug with a, a, few, a handful of greenfield projects. 
Um, actually, the one that we are working on right now started out as a greenfield project, but it's now a staff augmentation contract. So typically, um, I would say that staff aug is the majority of our projects right now. Um, and that's been pretty interesting because we get a lot of insight into how different organizations work and structure their um, workflow, which has always been interesting. Um, and, you know, it's really nice to uh, also, like, um, I guess, have an element of education involved uh, where we try to make sure the best practices we use are, um, you know, consistently applied and um, easy to understand. Very cool. Very cool. So when you when you come into a staff log project, you know, what what kind of role do do you take on? Um, so I, I would say it's a mix between feature delivery and also a bit more of the consulting aspect where um, because it's a staff augmentation contract, um, the clients, um, engineers will also typically be working alongside us. So in that scenario, we try to do lots of code reviews. We pair program with them to make sure everyone's on the same page. And we talk things through about the domain of the problem we're trying to solve so that you know everyone's on the same page and we are um, delivering the most amount of value to uh, the engineers we work with. So yeah, I would say that it's a pretty much a mix. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like uh, the the amount of time uh, a staff like, and it's not it's not just the unit of work when you do staff hog. It's also the unit of work plus you know trying to set good examples and set precedent for when the project finally comes back to you know entirely in house. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah, correct. And I think um, we try to also document things where where it makes sense. So I mean, we typically don't document that much because I guess one of the benefits of using a framework like Ember, which is so, which is opinionated, uh, you know, um, unless you're doing something which is really different, you know, um, a new or uh, a new Ember developer who just looks at the code won't be too surprised by, um, I would say, idiomatic Ember. So we try to write um, our apps with that in mind, um, like what, how would uh, a new Ember developer who would, who is just running the client's company um, be able to understand the project. So we, we try not to do anything too crazy. Uh, and if we do so, do something too cra crazy, which is very rare, we do document um, that very well. Yeah, that's that's really nice. Uh, I, I have heard uh, some people who don't necessarily practice Agile who were saying that, that they were downing Agile because they were saying most people uh, look at the whole like uh, working code over documentation as working code, no documentation. Um, and so they're saying that there tends documentation tends to like not just uh, be not prioritized, but like almost never written. Um, so I, I do find documentation is really helpful, especially where, where you have little hacks or. Yeah, definitely agreed. Yeah, I know, like, whenever I've encountered uh, something that's been well-documented, I've always been very thankful. Like, oh, thank you for documenting this strange edge case because it would have taken me hours to figure it out. Right. Yeah, you always yeah. kind of do that. Like, you read that comment, and it's like, you know what? Thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> that. You know, I just have that, like, second. Yeah, I'm not going to try and rewrite this thing that you took a lot of time to to, to work on right. unless right. it really calls for it. Well, I find that, I find that those little hacks are the easiest things to just go in there and like be like just delete and be like, hey, the test still pass and uh, and everything seems to work. So obviously that wasn't needed, and it's like, well, you don't know why it was in there. Yeah, then it's yeah, then you feel very strange when you delete it. Right. Um, yeah, and you always in, in, invariably end up having to get bisect to figure out that when you deleted that wonky yep. line of code, you uh, broke the entire you broke board. something. Yeah. So with Dockyard doing a lot of Elixir these days. Um, do you typically do that mostly on your Greenfield apps or do, are you finding people already coming to you with staff hog work in Elixir? Um, for now, mostly it's been Greenfield. Um, I'm not actually too sure how many people use Elixir in production right now. Um, but that said, we do have one or two clients who are and have contacted us and we're speaking with them. But uh, I would say majority of our Elixir projects are completely greenfield. That's cool. So between between uh, between rescues and new code um, and the that advising role, which is kind of like maybe where Staffog sits, um, depending you know upon circumstance, uh, which which one of those do you prefer to work? With? Uh, definitely, I'd say Greenfield is quite exciting. You know, it's I mean, I guess it's always exciting starting on a new project, and um, you know how you always make a promise to yourself. You know, this time I will architect my application <laughs> well, <laughs> and you know this time I will do things right. 
and it it feels good to to start on a clean slate and um, basically try not to repeat the same mistakes you've been making. <laughs> uh, and then I would say advising is also quite quite nice. I guess I like pairing with people and talking to code. That's something uh, which we've done we we do a lot at Dockyard, and it's something I enjoy a lot. Because you know it's always valuable having someone to bounce ideas off or someone to do sanity checks on what you're doing is not too crazy or if you've missed some detail, important detail. Yeah, we we recently had kind of a uh, started as a training session, but it turned into more of an advising thing and a kind of pairing. And I really liked those. It was like a week week long, and it was really nice to have a little bite sized piece where you go in, see immediate progress, and then you're like done with it and move on to something else that's interesting. I wish I could do that just constantly. Yeah, and then actually also recently we've tried out um, this thing called mob programming. That is where it's kind of like pair programming, but um, it's a larger group. And you basically have uh, five-minute rotations of a person driving. Um, we've tried it out um, sort of informally on one of our projects, and it's been actually quite interesting an interesting approach. Um, I, I can't really speak to how effective it is, but um, I think there's a mob programming conference happening sometime this year. Um, so that would be interesting to go to. I mean, because initially, I, I have to admit, I was quite skeptical when I heard about it. Like, can you really be effective with so many cooks, you know, effectively? Uh, and it turned out it was actually quite interesting. There was a lot of insight, uh, interesting insights we, we gleamed from that um, trial run. So, yeah, I don't know if any if if you guys have tried mob programming? No, I mean, possibly in like uh like a meetup actually, uh where we walk somebody through code and then try to solve a problem together. Um that's kind of I'm um, what I'm imagining mob programming is. Is that kind of the Yeah, it's kind of similar. It's it's like pair programming except we you just take turns at driving and right. it, you there's a strict like 5 minute or 10 minute rotation where you swap. Yeah, I mean that that sounds really fun, but I I I'm I'm think i'm kind of with you i'm a little skeptical i'd probably yeah. want to try it a few times I, I i feel like it could very easily especially among uh really experienced developers it could end up bike shedding a lot definitely that's what I yeah i guess about. um i think only cer- certain kind of things are warrant a mob programming session so yeah I'll be, i'm interested to attend a conference and see what yeah. it's all about well it certainly sounds fun yeah it kind of sounds like uh you know your people in a mall like all of a sudden randomly breaking out into <laughs> programming angry mob <laughs> <laughs> so um when you uh, when you start working on either Greenfield or um, or a Brownfield app, do you do you have a, a do you tend to follow a specific testing strategy, or is there um, or is it is it kind of a per project? Um, it's definitely more per project. It depends usually on the kind of project we're working on. So, um, as an example, one of the client apps we're working on right now has a very interesting domain um, to do with analytics and. We've had to uh, do a lot of spikes for that for that um, application. So in those instances, we've actually not written any tests at first because um, a lot of the initial work was just us exploring the domain to figure out uh, where all the edge cases were. You know what is what exactly is the thing we're trying to build and and solve. So we spent a lot of time trying to understand the domain before we actually wrote any code. And when we first did um, the spike project, um, I I don't believe there were any tests. Uh, written because uh, it was just a throwaway project. Um, but when we did the actual implementation, we did um, the traditional strategy, you know, write your tests and then build the thing, make the test pass. Um, and I think Brian wrote a really good blog post about um, this pattern that we've been using uh, quite recently, maybe on the 23rd of March. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really insightful blog post about uh, red-green refactor and um, some misconceptions that people have about it. Right. Yeah, I, I think uh, spikes are one of those things that uh, unless you're a very disciplined uh, like I don't know, team, you can very easily keep that spike and then you end up like not being able to reap a lot of the benefits of, you know. Yes, it. definitely. I, that, that is kind of why we intensely write our spikes to be, uh, I wouldn't say poor quality, but we we don't put too much effort into the spike because we, we want to throw it away. We don't want to make it too precious that you you feel you feel as though you know you can't abandon this code yeah yeah but i mean spikes in general i think are super useful in trying to understand the domain and they have their use case but i agree with what you said you know it, it takes discipline to not just use the spike 
I know, for example, like um, from my experience working in my own startup and with other startups, it's it's very sometimes it can be uh, very hard because you know you do a spike and then you're like, hey, look, I managed to do this cool thing, and then you show the founder or you show like, your co-founder, and then they're like, wow, this is exciting, let's 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 launch with this, you know, why why wait? And there you have it, you launch your product on a spike. Right. Right, it's a, it's a temptation. You're like, oh, but it's so close. It's almost done. We could yeah. do two more things, and we're done. We ship it. MVP, right? Uh huh. Yeah, totally. Uh, that, that's totally. funny. Sorry, that because that's how we actually launched our first startup, the Price Geek. We built this two day hack, then we threw it on Hacker News, and it blew, kind of blew up. And that was what we launched with. <laughs> but it was yeah. actually good because uh, we learned a lot from that. Yeah. But definitely yeah. not sustainable. Right. Yeah, I've also noticed that uh, one thing that spikes up with is. Uh, Oftentimes you don't know the domain, like you don't know some piece about it. Like um, one situation we ran into is that when we first built a, the audio player for Ember Weekend, we didn't really know how web audio worked. And we were trying to test drive the development of this and didn't know which things were async or what the API even looked like for um, the audio player. And so we basically just ended up not being able to test it until it was already written. And just having to go back and add regression tests. Um, yeah, well, not not until after we spent many many hours trying to test it first oh yeah and it was it, it just kept uh, the, the tests were so brittle like everything was working for hours and hours and hours and finally it would just be like uh, this is just isn't the right way to, to test this thing and finally once we had it ready it was much easier to go back and test um not necessarily a spike because like we couldn't just uh throw the work away but um because we already had some tests written and abstractions created but yeah uh, at some point it was just easier to just go in and, and just code the whole thing get it working and go oh, okay this is how it works and then go back and add regression yeah definitely i yeah yeah i can agree so um do you find yourself being uh, very rigid in your testing like like you must test all the time sort of thing uh, at dockyard or is it uh, is it something else so at dockyard we try to do it within reason um like I mentioned before, um, especially with since we work on a bunch of greenfield projects from time to time, it's important that we spike first, do discovery, make sure you know we understand the domain as well as the client does, or sometimes better than the client does, um, so that you know because we're in consulting, and um, I would say that we're not super 100% strict on testing. I mean, it's impossible to you know test an application to one like to cover every single edge case in the known universe. I mean, that's obviously impossible. Um, so we do it within reason. We try to uh, maximize, I would say, like the ratio of um, effort versus um, coverage. So we generally try to cover, I mean, to give like a rough idea about, uh, we try to make sure like, what is the term for it? I think 20% of the, 80% of the results come from 20% of the work. I think right. that's what the, saying is so that's kind of what we try to go for um, we make sure we cover the major pieces and then we do lots of unit tests to cover the edge cases um, but even then we can never really be a 100% uh, confident that the app is perfect because uh, no app is ever perfect except for except for the next greenfield one you know yeah <laughs> except for the next greenfield one this time you'll do it right <laughs> So where do you put all your uh, testing emphasis or kind of like what is your ratio of uh, acceptance to like integration tests or, or unit tests? Uh, in the past, we in, for Ember, we've used a lot of um, in, uh, acceptance tests in the past. Uh, and then we used to use this page object um, abstraction that we I think we blogged about as well. Uh, but more recently, we've started to do more component integration tests. And I mean, we still do have acceptance tests, but we've begun writing more component integration component integration tests mainly because um, acceptance tests are quite slow um, and component integration tests are really nice and fast and you know when your test suite is fast uh, developers feel obviously better about writing tests um, and that's what we found to be good although that said we do miss the acceptance helpers quite a lot but I think we've written quite a bunch of our own um, and may, we may even release that as an add-on at some point. Right, and that's mostly to deal with uh, asynchrony inside of component integration tests? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, that's always been a friction point for us um, with recommending integration tests is that at some point you're going to get bit by you know the asynchronous nature of some part of your component and it's going to be... Annoying. Yeah, it's actually uh, really 
it's really easy to troll yourself with a component integration test, especially um, if you don't use... So um, one thing we actually got trolled by recently was... Um, so uh, at Docker, we like to use, as a, best uh, as a best practice, we like to use... We like to destructure, for example, git and set from Ember. And then we use it in the form of git uh, this, like the, the object followed by the key name, followed by the value if it's a set. Um, and that actually ended up trolling us in a component integration test. Uh, so we actually looked at one of the test helper add-ons that uh, I believe Ember CLI ships with. Um, and we found that the in a component integration test, uh, this dot set is actually different from what we thought it was. And under the hood, there is um, it will actually wrap certain things in a run loop. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we were using the set this version of um, that method, we were actually bypassing the run loop and it actually caused a lot of issues for us. But uh, ever since we, we found out about that, we went back and make sh made sure like every, anything that was async was properly wrapped in a run loop. And yeah, so yeah, it's really easy to troll yourself. And yeah. in certain cases, you can even crash Phantom uh, or <laughs> tra uh, your Chrome browser. I was about to say, crashing Phantom is not that, you know, I mean... Yeah, I was gonna, yeah crashing <laughs> Phantom is not hard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, some of these problems are going to go away anyway with the testing unification, right? Yeah, so RWGBO had this really great um, RFC on the grand, grand unification testing, or I like to call it making tests great again. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that's a really great uh, RFC, and uh, Robert, he wrote like this really awesome... I wouldn't say essay, but it's very comprehensive uh, about his ideas on testing. And I'm pretty excited, and I hope that lands uh, soon. So um, when you are testing uh, an integrated application, like uh, you know Rails, Rails backend and Ember frontend, how do you deal with um, covering the air gap between the two? Um, so typically, we use JSON mocks. Um, we've... Uh, as much as I like using Mirage on my personal projects, I think for our client apps, we don't use any kind of uh, solution that is too complex because I, I think our goal is usually to be able to hand off the project to the client and have them basically pick it up and you know be productive on day one and not have to learn um, all these extra things that um, might be tricky to learn. So for most of the applications where we don't control the API, we've just used JSON mocks and Pretender. Uh, I think the only app thing we've worked on where we do a sort of integrated test where we hit some sort of test server is with our website, um, dockyard.com, which we've also just um, launched. We just we also just launched the fastboot version of it, which is really exciting. Yeah, I yeah. think I think I saw saw. Some some tweet about that on uh, on day of EmberConf that all the fast boot stuff was ready and uh, that's pretty awesome. It's really awesome. Yeah. Um, so Dan McLean, he's our director of engineering at Dockyard. He's he's worked uh, really heavily with Tom and the rest of the fast boot team on getting some of the features out. And I think uh, it's been awesome because we've managed to. Uh, we used to be on this old older version of fast boot where we had some issues with some of the I think some of the the triple curlies, there was a problem with that in, in the old fastboot. But now that's been fixed, and a bunch of other things have been fixed as well. And we've managed to deploy our production site, uh, production website in fastboot, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and we even managed to get a plug on EmberConf, which is oh, that's right. obviously cool. <laughs> yeah, that's super yeah. cool. Um, yeah, yeah I, think, I, I think the original like fastboot Dilemma with uh, Dockyard, if I if I recall correctly, with the old version was like a giant memory leak. Yeah, that was also a huge memory leak that yeah. um, I believe has gone away, thankfully. Yeah, right. <laughs> is the is the back end of um, the Dockyard.com is it is it pulling any resources from like Ajax or anything that that you're having to deal with um, in Fastboot? Um, yeah, we are. So our our back end's written in Elixir and Phoenix, and our application will uh, basically just gets all the posts and uh, stuff like that from our API. Um, I don't really know on the full implement implementation details of how our fastboot implementation works. I mean, I don't, I don't believe we do any rehydration. Um, so I think what happens is, I mean, I might be wrong. Uh, we we serve up the service side rendered application, and then once Ember loads, we basically have to rebuild and basically blow it, blow the server side stuff away, and 
replace the DOM. Uh, but with rehydration coming at some point, I think that will be uh, fixed and we'll have a lot better Im improvement for the first render. So uh, what uh, what open source projects are you working primarily in right now? Um, so the majority of my open source work is with add-ons for both uh, my personal GitHub as well as the Dockyard repo, uh, as well as every now and then I will uh, open a PR on someone else's add-on. Um, and I think add-ons are really great for Ember. They're a really great way of experimenting with new ideas and trying different things out. For example, today I just read a, a blog post by Torin, Torin Billups, on Ember Redux uh, and how he implemented a data down actions up architecture using his add-on. And I think it's really interesting that um, Ember allows us to basically build on top of its primitives to try out all these different ideas. I think that's really awesome. and. I would have to say a lot of other frameworks don't, we don't have that, you don't have that luxury of being able to try out things so easily because you have to make sure like they play nicely together, which is a whole, uh, a huge effort on, on its own. Um, and I would say right now, my pet project is the Ember Composable Helpers Library. Um, for those that haven't used it, it's an add-on that ships with a bunch of uh, very functional um, helpers. You can think of it as the Ramda.js of Ember helper add-ons. And the goal is there is for us to allow more functional and a more declarative style of templating. Um, for example, one of the coolest helpers in there, um, I'm a bit biased because I, I built it, <laughs> is the pipe helper. <laughs> so the pipe helper is kind of similar to the pipe operator in Elixir. And if you're not familiar with Elixir um, and the pipe operator, uh, the pipe operator is basically, it's almost like sugar for writing a very heavily nested a uh, bunch of functions into a very nice uh, series of data transforms. So the pipe operator, instead of um, you know having like this deeply nested uh, all these parentheses everywhere, you can write things that flow. It's hard to describe in words. Uh, you have to look at it. Um, but it basically, it's a lot nicer to read and to compose things. And so that's kind of the what the pipe helper in Ember Composable Helpers lets you do. It lets you pipe certain things in um, a sequence of actions. And it's, it's really nice to be able to, for example, uh, toggle some UI state or something like that, where uh, you know it makes kind of makes, sometimes it makes more sense to compose those actions versus creating a, a composite action in your component. And then um, in addition to Ember Composable Helpers, I'm also working on Ember CI Flash and Ember Metrics to uh, kind of bring them into a more modern uh, architecture. I think I plan to implement contextual components, which just land, which landed pretty recently for Ember CLI Flash. Um, and then I also plan to extract some of the adapters in Ember Metrics, which is a uh, helps you uh, work with uh, different analytics services. Uh, I plan to extract those adapters into separate add-ons, so you will no longer need to uh, basically install every adapter into your app when you're not using them. Uh, even though we do tree shaking, but you might be able to do something like uh, install Ember Metrics, Google Analytics, and you'll have that adapter and you can use it in your application. Yeah, speaking of tree shaking, I think you do tree shaking in Ember Composable Helpers as well, um, where you specify in, I want to say, the Ember CLI build step. At some, some place, there's configuration to basically say these are the, the specific helpers that I use. Yep. Um, so that I guess that's also where you can see the Elixir influence. Uh, in Elixir, you can uh, also import methods and you can specify um, these two keys like only or except. So for example, if you said, um, you know, only import the pipe helper, then what happens is the add-on will will compute that um, what it needs to import and only import um, the pipe helper. Or if you say something like accept the pipe helper, it will import everything except the pipe helper. So that's really nice. Um, and it's actually a really good pattern. I, I feel that more add-ons should do. Uh, especially for add-ons which ship with a lot of helpers. So I may even uh, open a PR to Ember Truth helpers to implement something similar, where you may not necessarily want to bring in every single helper that it provides, um, or you might even want to uh, like override something or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a really nice pattern for slimming down your build uh, and not really including the, the stuff you don't really need. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and, and just going back to Ember Composable Helpers, it's amazing. Uh, 
I think the pipe operator is uh, is super cool, and uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, I don't know who I was talking to about this. It was probably Chase uh, talking about um, basically putting all things into the template, uh, making them like super declarative, and just starting writing basically writing Lisp inside of your templates. <laughs> uh, and this allows you to do that. And I think uh, I, you know, obviously, take that with a grain of salt. I feel like uh, depending on uh, a lot of different things that may be a good idea or maybe a terrible idea, but it's certainly amazing uh, to to see that be a possibility. So I, I'm really excited, especially with regard to the pipe operator. I feel like there's just so many applications for that. Yeah, right? definitely. I think one of the most common things I've heard about the add-on Ember Composable Helper is, is that um, some people definitely feel that uh, it's kind of dangerous having so much logic in the template. And I agree, you know, it, it's very easy to go overboard with... Um, you know, making your help uh, your templates look like this really deeply nested lisp uh, with like lots and lots of parentheses, um, and I think ultimately it boils down to the skill level and experience level of the developer. Um, I think uh, it's very tempting to put everything in one place, uh, but then you know you get into PHP land, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is not the best. Uh, but then you know you also have the the people who who think JSX is a good idea. Uh, I'm not going to comment whether or not I'm one of those people. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, the story about Ember Composable Helpers is actually quite interesting as well. Um, it started out as a joke between me and my colleague Martin Schilstra, who uh, also built Ember Form 4. We, it started as a joke because um, for one of the client applications we were working on, uh, we, we, were, we were pairing together and we, we had both written this really horrible... Uh, if and or and like this really horrible uh, like lispy helper expression and we were just laughing about you know like oh could we actually build a whole application in HBS and helpers and after a spike it turns out you can so Ember Composable Helpers was born uh, out of those um, ideas and I guess what started out as a joke is now uh, it's turned into a pet project. I, th I think um, I think there's still a lot more experimentation to be done to see how comfortable people are with putting some more logic into the templates, not necessarily everything. Uh, but what we found that in in our um, the the course of building the add-on as well as trying it out in our own applications is that um, in a lot of cases um, dealing with presentational logic or UI logic is a lot better in the template. So um, I think Yehuda actually, we, we spoke to Yehuda about it and he mentioned that um, we can think of helpers sometimes, the helpers uh, that we've built for Ember Composable Helpers, you can almost think of them as computed property macros. Um, they're really nice and composable uh, and they help you um, re reduce a lot of boilerplate code that you might otherwise have been writing. Um, and with uh, the pipe helper especially, I think it's really beneficial to be able to say something like, you know, save this user and then close the dropdown. Um, in my Emberconf talk, I talk about how um, if we had written that as a single composite action, it um, sometimes feels a little bit dirty because you're mixing both a data concern as well as a UI concern. Um, and one approach would be to split that out into two actions, but then you wouldn't be able to invoke that in a single button, for example. So the pipe helper would let you declaratively say, you know, save the user, close the dropdown, and you can express that right in the template um, where where you would naturally expect um, like presentational data to live. So yeah, I think um, there's a lot more experimentation to be done with the add-on and I'm writing a, a very comprehensive blog post about helpers in general that I hope will clear the air. And um, if anyone listening is interested, I would uh I would really appreciate if you tried out Composable Helpers and um, let me know if you have any feedback. Definitely, definitely. Oh, and uh, going back to your demo, I think uh, you may have mentioned this uh, last time we recorded uh, that uh, in that in that case where you want to close it, uh, save and close. Um, now you've made the pipe helper promise aware. Is that is that true? Yeah. So yeah, um, the pipe helper is promise aware. So for example, if the um, the save action returns a promise, the pipe helper will actually wait for that save promise to resolve before passing the return value of that promise into the, the next action. So that's Very really cool. nice. So if, you know, if for any reason your save fails, it won't actually 
close the drop down unless you explicitly tell it to. So uh, what happens in an error state and that kind of thing? Like, do you typically just handle that in the kind of actions behind the scenes in the component or do you have any way of dealing with that in the component? Um, yeah, so I guess the one of the beauty, the be the be beautiful part about using a promise is you can then you can just add a catch uh, handler, and you will very easily be able to handle the error even though it's being passed into the pipe helper. You can still handle the error like uh, you normally would in a component. So you might, for example, maybe you want to show a flash message, or you might want to put an alert box up. You can very easily do that. Um, even using the pipe helper. So does the pipe just break at that point and just stop kind of continuing on, like once you return a, an error? Yeah, it won't. It basically won't. Uh, it would just stop and not continue right. uh, to the okay. next action. Very cool. What are some of the challenges you faced while developing this add-on? Uh, I would say most of the most uh, part of the challenge is actually been managing reactions to it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's. I would say it's... I wouldn't say it's super controversial, but it's definitely um, raised a few questions about how much templates should live in the logic. And I think um, the blog post I'm writing should uh, reveal my thoughts on that more in detail. But basically, I think uh, it's it really boils down to um, how, how comfortable you are with putting some things in your template. And I think in some cases, it makes a lot of sense to... Uh, you know, like, for example, with the pipe helper, it's, it makes a lot of sense to compose them directly in the template versus, you know, having these like five different actions that all do some variant of the same thing. That is, uh, and I would say like, you know, like with programming in general, tools can be easily abused. So yeah, like uh, it really depends on how you use the tool and it's really up to your best judgment whether or not you abuse it. Um, right. Like I think in our original conversation, I mentioned, you know, you could very easily build an eval helper, but please yes. don't, please <laughs> don't. Uh, Disclaimer, please don't do this. <laughs> um, but you you know, you could very easily no no one's stopping you from creating a helper that evaluates some some JavaScript and, you know, like inserts it as a DOM element or whatever. Uh, you know, the tools are available for you to do that kind of thing, but um, nobody will do that because obviously it's a bit it's a bad practice. Um, and I think that's the same with the pipe helper or any any other helper add on. You can very easily abuse it to do things it was not meant to do or um, to basically try to use it where it shouldn't be used. Um, and I think that um, that usually falls to how experienced the, the developer is. And hopefully, um, as, again, my blog post will reveal more about, um, I would say, best practices for uh, composing helpers and uh, in what scenarios should you compose and what scenarios should you... Are you better off just... Um, doing things in the component. Right, definitely. So in your EmberConf talk, uh, you suggested uh, using a top-level component in your controller templates, and um, uh, and this would help to alleviate uh, when there's a change and the controllers get dropped, um, that you'll basically already be ready and have that top-level routable component. Um, but there is like kind of another side of the argument uh, that I've heard where people are saying, no, no, just, just use, them the, use them the same old way um, because when that when that lands, you should just be a renamed controller component, and it should all be good. Uh, can you speak to a little bit of, of that? Yeah, um, yeah, I did. I did mention that in my EmberConf talk. Um, and one thing I would like to also say is that um, just for anyone who's listening to this and hasn't listened to the talk, is that um, you shouldn't. First of all, you shouldn't be too creative in trying to remove controllers. You know, controllers are going to be around for a while. So you should only really do it when it makes sense for you, and um, you shouldn't try to creatively go out of your way to uh, avoid using a controller. Um, for example, like, you still need controllers for query parameters and bubbling actions, um, and in some and in some cases, you know, it, it does make sense to still use controllers. But um, I guess if you want, if you really want to be future-proof, um, one approach that has been recommended by um, some members of the core team is to use a top level component. Uh, I think I do believe some other people don't necessarily agree with it, um, but I can outline the the arguments for why it makes sense. Um, and basically, the the point is that the major point of, of uh, our argument is that the controller right now is a singleton, so it's long lived and it holds it's stateful um, and Sometimes right now in your application, you might actually be using um, that state, that statefulness uh, without realizing it. 
So um, one reason why it will not be an easy transition, you wouldn't, it's not, it's not just going to be rename controller to component and call it day, is that um, you, if you're already using some of that stateful logic, uh, you know, that stateful logic will not be preserved in a routable component because a routable component is just another component and it's going to be stateless. So any stateful logic will actually need to be moved out into a service uh, in order to make your transition future-proof. Okay, so you could, um, potentially, you could be doing this already and not be using the state, and in which case it would be an easy transition, um, but but by forcing yourself to pull them out of a component, um, you're kind of betting that you're going to save yourself some future headache or um, have some of these creeped-in problems where you you didn't realize you were using state. Um, so just it's just kind of future-proofing and just playing it safe. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, I think uh, you should do it where it makes sense for you. Um, you know, it's it's not like controllers are evil and we should avoid them at all costs. Um, you know, um, there is a reason why controllers haven't been deprecated and removed yet. Um, it's it's not like it's a bad uh, uh, abstraction or anything. It's just that we've found that components are uh, a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I would say that. You know where it makes sense for you. Uh, you can transition to a service for your stateful logic, and keep all the stateless logic in your component. Um, and that w should I that that should ideally um, give you a more future-proof, um, I guess, implementation for when routable components land. So so one one good piece of advice also would be to just don't keep state in your controllers right now, right? And just make services and try to try to yeah. keep any persistent state out of controllers. Correct. That could even be an approach where you use a, a service, you move all your stateful logic into a service, and you can still use a controller if you wanted to. Right. Yeah. This uh, this this argument is um, it's funny because um, it's not really like the people on each side of it are, are really have that different philosophy. It's it's not a uh, you know knock down like beat down fight. It's really just a kind of a simple like um, one way or the other, and they're very close to being you know the same recommendation. I agree. Yeah, I, I would be. I, I would try to avoid also calling it like a, like an this argument versus that argument. I think that kind of uh, divides the community a little bit, which I don't think is very healthy. Right. Yeah, and and really, it's a. I think it's funny that the, the discussion is not really revolving around whether or not, um, routable components are are the, are like necessary or the way to go. It's really just about how to get there the fastest. So yeah. it is funny that you know this is a, this is an argument around a discussion that we've already agreed on. Correct. Yeah, I mean, like Ember, Ember right now is in a bit of an awkward transition phase. Like, like kind of like Ember is going through puberty. Um, it's <laughs> it's definitely awkward. Like with things like you know the like multiple ways of using actions and um, you know like this whole controller and component confusion. I think um, Ember right now is. Uh, definitely a little bit awkward, but um, it will get better, and I'm really excited to see uh, to see when routable components land. Right. <laughs> I was actually uh, j just this weekend trying to to mess around with routable components. The uh, you know the, the add on feature flag. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and then I was kind of disappointed because um, I was trying to also use angle bracket components at the time, and angle bracket components were actually removed uh, until Glimmer two lands. So yep. uh, yeah, yeah, latest I version. Yeah, uh, glimmer, uh, glimmer components or angle bracket components are also super exciting, and uh, I think that is also one thing that will change the way we write Ember apps uh, because it's definitely a very different paradigm where you can no longer have modify some sort of uh, modify an attribute that was passed in and expect it to just propagate everywhere in your app. You now have to do more functional style where you you either opt into that old behavior with the mute helper or you. Uh, adopt a more data down actions approach where you, um, you know, send actions to modify data instead of modifying it directly. Right. Yeah. It was a, that was a part of the thing I was messing with this weekend was a uh, using immutable JS. This was also uh, inspired by Torn B. So um, uh, it's really interesting. I, I really can't wait till Ember has that kind of stuff built in. Um, just uh, it's nice to be able to um, say like have have one way bindings all the way down and have that be automatic because. Uh, somebody was asking, they were, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying that, you know, I have this model that all the way down here in this component, I could just change it. Why don't I just do that here? I think this was, um, maybe Sam Selikov. We were, um, he was, he was talking with Torin about this specific thing and, 
um, it's nice that we're all we're all kind of going in the same direction about the data downs actions up, but there is a discussion about um, kind of where where things can be mutated. Yeah, uh, I, I I I do talk about it um, in my EmberConf talk about where you should modify data, um, and yeah, I think the using an objects methods can also be uh, a valid use case. Um, but I think sticking with uh, a more traditional data down actions approach is probably more idiomatic and uh, will probably give you less uh, of a headache um, because you know you can actually it might it might be more work passing things around, but you can actually be more confident that you're not uh, you know mutating something that something else is relying on without uh, like without realizing it. Right. You made the comment about uh, we don't want to make this an argument because it's not healthy for the argu- for the community. Uh, that was right before I was about to say that in your notes you have pro controller activists, which uh, is the coolest line. I almost like want to steal that and use a blog post for that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Pro controller activists. Yeah. It's so um, good. It's so <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, unfortunately, like, yeah, I, I think it does. It has like this discussion has caused a bit of a divide. Um, because people are confused about what is the best way. And I yeah. think, I guess it's, it's such a tricky question because again, you know, Ember is in a transition phase right now. Uh, nobody can actually predict how Ember will look like in six months or even a year or a year from now. So all of these suggestions are also like, you know, best case scenario, like things may even change. I mean, who knows? We can't, we can't predict the future. Um, right. so, um, ultimately it just boils down to, um, at what point do you want to start transitioning? Is it now or later? Uh, you know, like what makes sense for you? Um, so uh, just, I would say, do the work that you need to. Don't don't try to create more work for yourself when you don't need it. What is the personal project consuming most of your time at the moment? So um, I, I always get stressed out by conference talks. So a lot of my free time before was just sitting down and like working on my talk, going through it like a hundred times and trying to fig- uh, like come up with a succinct way of summarizing my thoughts on a topic. Because 30 minutes isn't really that long. Uh, so you have to be very concise about what you say. Uh, and that's always hard. Um, you know, words are tricky. Uh, but now that I have a lot of free, a uh, lot more free time, I'm not going to say a lot, but more. One of the first things I plan to do is to write a blog post um, on the Ember Composable Helpers add-on, as well as helpers in general. Um, I personally, I feel very excited by helpers. I think they're a really great addition to Ember. And I personally feel that um, helpers in Ember aren't talked about much. Um, and I, I kind of want to uh, like, kind of want to make them more popular and uh, to show people how powerful they can be and how useful they can be in your application. Um, and then I also plan to work on more features on on the Ember Composable Helpers add-on, uh, as well as some of the other libraries I've, I work on, like Flash, Ember in Viewport, and Ember Metrics. And then also, uh, obviously, I have this huge backlog of random ideas I want to turn into add-ons. Um, and hopefully now that I have a bit more time, I will be able to uh, work on those. Um, and I've also been thinking about maybe submitting uh, like lightning talk ideas to meetups around the U.S. Um, because, I mean, I've spent a year here and I haven't really seen that much of the U.S. So it's kind of like an excuse to um, travel a little bit uh, as well as, you know, um, talk about things that I really enjoy using in Ember, like helpers and um, closure actions, for example. Very cool. Very cool. Do you uh, do you have any uh, room for people to try to help out um, specifically? I'm assuming specifically with add-ons and things like that. Yeah, definitely. So um, on the Ember composable helpers, we have a bunch of issues that we are working on, some um, feature requests, um, and I think uh, right now that's the add-on that probably needs the most work. Um, so if anyone's interested in working with working and understanding Ember helpers and uh, also contributing to uh, this add-on, um, I would really appreciate if you took the time to tackle some of the issues we have on that repo. Yeah, and it seems like uh, it seems like 
it's not just uh, necessarily implementing, but also using would be helpful too for just fleshing out some of the ideas around helpers that we've been talking about, right? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I, I agree. If you have, uh, if you if you're able to try out the add-on and uh, maybe uh, even like private message me on Slack about uh, some like maybe an interesting use case or problems that you've encountered or just your general thoughts on the add-on, that would be uh, really helpful as well uh, in helping us make it better. So what do you think Ember's community can help to teach other communities? Um, I think the best thing about Ember's community is the fact that um, everyone is really open and friendly and welcoming. A lot of times, I think some uh, other communities out there can be uh, quite hostile to new developers because, um, you know, there is a very strong culture of um, if you needed to an- ask a question, you know, you should post it on Stack Overflow, make sure it's well formatted, make sure you're not repeating the question. Um, so that actually is, I-, I think that can be quite intimidating sometimes for new developers, junior developers especially. Um, and Slack, uh, our Ember's Slack channel has been really great in that regard. Like uh, no matter how um, how uh, noob or amateur you might think your question is, uh, there's almost always going to be someone available to point you in the right direction or help you out. And it's just a very it's a very low barrier to entry, and you know everyone's really helpful and friendly. And I, I wish more communities were like that. Yeah, we just mentioned on the podcast that was re- released today um, that Brian had a really great uh, blog post that was kind of about the the spirit of Emberconf, and uh, and that is something that like um, I think he said he'll always remember that, or that, like 20 years from now he won't remember you know what front end JavaScript framework he was using, but he'll remember you know the people, and that it's totally true because Ember has a really unique uh, community, um, especially now that I've actually been working with like a lot of other communities um, and popping in and out of uh, kind of some hardware. Uh, electronics kind of communities and it, and it is a, a completely different feeling to be a complete noob and uh, and go into a channel and get help immediately and not be told like well you didn't read the forum rules or you didn't uh, google google this and let me let me google that for you and Ember's um, super accepting and like really uh, really helpful yeah I think it's very easy for communities to um, converge to this culture where um, you sort of shame people with uh very basic questions. And I think that's kind of unhealthy. Uh, you know, um, everyone has to start somewhere. And, um, you know, some people might not be good at finding things and they just need a bit of nudging to uh, find things. And I think um, for what I've seen in the Slack channel, it's not like people come in asking for complete solutions to their problems. Uh, people have conversations about their problems. And I think that's really, really great. And um, Slack is just like a really nice avenue for getting that kind of help. Yeah. And I think it was maybe Stanley that was mentioning, uh, you see somebody in the channel that's in the like help channel and they'll be asking for help because they just started using Ember. And then the next week you'll see them in there and somebody will ask a question and that, that same person will be now helping out a new person. And it, it really is like fostering, you know, like bringing everybody up and it really does like ease the burden on the, the few people that are truly like super experts on all of this. They can't handle all of the help. So uh, it seems like there's a lot of investment made to to bring everybody up with them, uh, so that they it kind of lightens their load when somebody else can comes out and asks a question. So it's really great. Yeah, and again, I think that's one of the other benefits, uh, the many benefits of uh, of Ember, uh, Ember's philosophy of convention over configuration. You know, where we we all agree that there are one or maybe a few ways of doing things, and we. Uh, use that as a standard, and I think that's been really helpful for people who are just learning Ember. You know, there's uh, you don't try to rebuild the wheel every time, um, and yeah, I think that's really great about Ember's community. Yeah, actually, um, one of our clients when we were we were helping them with training and things, and uh, and they they kept running in these little issues, and and John and I would be like, oh, you know what? I bet it's doing this, and we we we've built up a bit of intuition, so not necessarily knowledge, but sometimes you just learn to think how the framework thinks, which is it all comes out of the the conventions, and that the conventions themselves are not just like rules; they're patterns, um, and so it's really easy to build up. I mean, there is kind of a learning curve with Ember, and um, people are right about that, but there is a there's conventions and there are patterns, and you you build up intuition, and it's uh, it's really nice. Yeah. I agree. So uh, it is a uh, it is a long-standing tradition, about a year now, um, that we have our guests on the show uh, name um, name the episode. And and on the first take of this recording, we surprised you, and it was uh, it was accidental. 
but that is actually part of the tradition almost. So in this case, I think you're you're going to get to name, you're going to be the first person, this is a new tradition almost, to name the same episode twice. <laughs> um, yes. So if you, uh, if you could two. pick a name. Um, okay, so I'm going to name this episode like stealing candy from a baby. And that's partly because, um, you know, recording a podcast is supposedly easy, but um, we hit some technical issues and that's why we had to re-record. But um, I'm glad we did the re-recording. I think I, I had the chance to actually... Uh, cheat a little bit and think through my answers again <laughs> which is really good right this this might set a bad precedent like uh the next <laughs> now everybody like, wants oh, crap, to take that was two. a bad episode I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna toss this audio file out or something <laughs> yeah well thank you very much for being on the show uh very appreciative of the time you took uh and these this was awesome i'm my mind is racing all over again um even though we recorded this once before uh so yeah thank you very much for coming on the show no problem thanks for having me yeah thanks lauren thanks for coming on the show 